Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. I'm Kim Conklin, a Windsor-based writer and filmmaker. Today we're doing something a little different. We have a wide-ranging, extended conversation with M.L. Liebler, an internationally known and widely published Detroit poet, university professor, literary arts activist, and arts organizer. M.L.'s work has received many awards. In late 2018, Heaven Was Detroit, an anthology about the history of the Detroit music scene he edited, won a Penn Oakland Award. Recently, we sat down in his office at Wayne State to talk about the book and how it came to be, and also about the music and art scene in Detroit over the last four decades. During the conversation, you'll also hear some excerpts from the musical performance of Heaven Was Detroit, performed earlier at the Aretha Jazz Cafe at the Music Hall. Now, here's M.L. Liebler talking about Heaven Was Detroit. Um, in December, I went out to San Francisco. Very honored by that. Had no idea. Um, it didn't. It came through the press um, versus um, they didn't. E- you know, the press emailed me and said, "You know, you won this Penn Oakland Award, um, and they want to know if you want or they if we want to take an ad out in their program." And I'm like, "What? What?" And you know, I, I don't know if they do know what that is, but it's pretty prestigious. It's the Josephine Miles Award, uh, blue collar, known as the blue collar pen. And um, so that was the first I heard of it. I mean, they didn't, they never really contacted me until I got more involved and started wondering, like, well, you know, is this real? Is, you know, I, I'm not hearing anything. But they were communicating with the PR people at the press who obviously didn't think it was big enough thing to, for them to get involved with. So, um, so anyway, I just went off, I, I went on my own and I mean, I went out to get it and of course I was going to do that and it was a great honor. So that I guess brings to three or four awards that book picked up. So it's been really well received. From the first part of Peace and Sections by the great Detroit poet Al Young, he writes, Every time I watch Standing in the Shadows of Motown to hear veteran jazz pianist Joe Hunter morph into the prime keyboardist of the Funk Brothers, I have to smile. While this brilliant jazz-rooted section built a fire under singers like Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, Gladys Knight and the Pips, the Contours, Stevie Wonder, Junior Walker and his all-stars, Martha and the Mandelas. Motown stars sold more records than the Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, the Beach Boys, and the Beatles combined. From, say, 1915 to 1945, before it got bebopped or kidnapped, as lovers of traditional jazz or swing might put it, jazz had become America's pop music. You danced to it, socialized to it, and it was in 1940, Detroit, probably at the Greystone Ballroom, 
when Diz and Bird were playing and Diz looked out over the audience and saw everybody dancing and having a really great time that he realized that something was happening in Detroit. I did an anthology. It finally came out in 2010 from Coffee House Press in Minneapolis. And it was it's called Working Words and it's stories, poems, essays about working class, uh, labor, and all of that. And I've been teaching labor studies here sort of on the side for God more than 25 years, so. I'm tied into it. I come from that kind of background, so, you know, I know it. it um, you know, go with what you know. I know it. So I don't write all my stuff related to that, but, you know, there's a certain amount of each book that I do that has, you know, stuff that connects to the working class. So, yeah, that, so to get that particular award, uh, it was just incredible. People think the working class or think of the working class as being maybe undereducated and and not appreciative of the arts. But when you look closer into it, at, you know, I just did this thing this weekend at a big UAW local that was all, you know, art, music, poetry, you know, film um, Saturday. And the place, you know, had a lot of people at it. And I started noticing that years before, uh, well, every year since 91, I've been having the, um, or hosting and putting on the annual uh, Bernard Firestone anniversary or tribute reading. Bernie Firestone was a famous labor leader in Detroit who actually was going to come and teach in our program when he, he retired. And just before he retired, he was assassinated by a disgruntled retiree behind his desk. So, and we, you know, we were all, he's pretty well known in labor community, so people were really excited about that, that he was coming here. Uh, But then it was such a shock in the whole city, because everybody knew Bernie. He was also interested in theater and poetry and music and singing and you know, the arts and labor has, really has a richer history than people would generally think, and, and he was he was all of that. So we started putting on this labor arts thing every October in conjunction with the long-running National Labor History Conference that Wayne hosts in October. Um, so, uh, the and the class that I teach and have taught the subtitle of the class is has always been Labor Through the Arts because it was created by a humanities department professor many years ago, whom I know. So I used to teach that class, so I knew a lot of that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, So the idea is to let others know that the arts is respected and is pretty prominent in a lot of things. And going back to that thing we just did, those are all UAW, many of them, UAW members or other union people who, you know, come to the program. I guess what I was going to say is back when I first started this thing, 
and it was during the newspaper strike, actually, um, 95 or something, 96, when we had the journal. I don't know if you remember that, the Detroit Journal. But somebody did a big article on me, and, and um, immediately two places reached out to do stuff. Uh, interestingly, one was the Detroit Opera House, and then the other people were labor writers, uh, union people, who wanted to create a festival, annual festival of labor writers, um, people who worked in factories and stuff, but who wrote poems or songs or whatever. So um, they reached out to me and we started what was called the Worker Writer Festival, which we would hold in different uh, union halls once a year. And I have to tell you, I, I myself doubted that concept because, well, not doubted it so much, but they, they set up the first one. It, wasn't my, it wouldn't have been my choice or idea, but they set up the first one on a Saturday night. I think it was like, you know, in May. So it was like a warm, warm night and a Saturday to boot and, uh, you know, something like 7 to 11. And I thought, nobody's going to come to this. I mean, who's going to... That's the worst time to have a poetry event is a Saturday. A Saturday at the Union Hall? I mean, you can't get those people to come there for meetings. You know, poetry, you you got to be kidding. Well, anyway, they we did it. And you know what? The place was filled, packed. I walked in thinking, oh, yeah, okay, I'll go to this thing. I'll be one of the people there. And uh, the place was packed, and all these different workers got up to read stories and poems. Maybe some sang a song I can't quite remember with guitar, uh, but but lots of poems. And it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen, you know, because I just I like I do like not expecting things and then it turn out like that. So I have that kind of problem, I guess. But I was so amazed at that. You know, it just blew me away. And then we started publishing an anthology of the workers in the UAW and other, I think, Teamsters were involved, uh, poetry by their members. Um, and then they would read it read at the annual event. And that went on for a long time. It doesn't exist now, but uh, it did, because this was back in mid-'90s. Um, so that also showed me, who you know, kind of thought I knew everything, how important it is. And then I had a friend who worked here. His daughter actually just made a, a Detroit film. She doesn't live here, but she's a filmmaker. And I don't know if you saw it advertised or whatever, but it's called, um, I think it's called Detroit 48202. And she followed a friend of hers from her childhood because she grew up right around here. And he was a mailman. So she followed him on his route, interviewed people, put a lot of Detroit history in about the city and how it's declined and what it was. And Anyway, uh, his, uh, her father was a good friend of mine here, and his, he was from the working class. In fact, it was because he was a union activist in Buffalo that um, he was brought before the House on American Activities Committee back then, he was fired from, um, you know, the uh, his automobile UAW job, 
And he just happened to think, well, he was, he, as he told it, he was walking by the University of Buffalo and thought, eh, I guess I'll go to school. You know, what the hell? He, he was from the Bronx. And I really liked this guy. He was so cool. You know, we, we, we had many strikes here at Wayne in the 80s. Every two years, the faculty went on strike. And he and I marched a lot together and got to know each other. And then when I started teaching this class, he came to, he would come. His area of expertise was working class theater. And he wrote a book on the uh, WPA during Franklin's years about uh, the importance of workers' theaters. And, you know, and he told me stories, which are, again, are amazing, where they would put, you know, at first when that passed, the WPA passed, they, they did, you know, they put authors to work and actors and artists and musicians, you know, they were all kind of put back to work, too. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Republicans nixed that after. Well, the Republicans, quite frankly, have been against the New Deal since the New Deal was introduced. I mean, really, they've... So for all those years, they've been against it. And they were against it then. And um, after a year or two, they killed that part of it, the theater part. But he said they used to pay the actors to perform like Shakespeare in parks in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, where you... You would think, like, are you kidding? You're going to do Shakespeare? And he said it was always packed. People loved it. And that made me think about things, too. So, uh, And he would visit my class and talk about that. Why has the Bluebird come to be such a symbol of Detroit's contribution to modern jazz? Simply put, the Bluebird Inn was the hippest modern jazz night spot during the city's bebop heyday. Almost every significant 1950s hard bop veteran in the city either played or hung out there. The Bluebird was unique because it was a place that people played, they came to listen, they came to enjoy each other's company. The late baritone saxophonist, the great Pepper Adams, once called it great atmosphere with nothing phony about it, no pretensions and great swinging music. It was in 1953 when Miles Davis came to Detroit to try to kick his heroin addiction. I don't know if that worked out so well, but he was here for many months. And he was friends with the folks at the Bluebird. He'd go over and join in the jams. And uh, one time he came up and his friend who owned the uh, place he tried to come in, he didn't have a tie on. The guy who owned the place said, look, Miles, I don't care who you are. You don't have a tie, you can't come in here. Miles thought about it for a few minutes. He went out the door, went around the corner of the bar, took his shoelace off, tied it around his neck, walked back in, And he was welcomed in and joined in on the stage. The music history of Detroit also is a very blue-collar kind of thing, especially in the early years, or even maybe the later years, but in the early years of jazz and blues in particular, those musicians... um, 
most of them came up either with their family or themselves, like John Lee Hooker, to work in the car factories. And then they would work in the car factories, and then uh, when they were, you know, at night or whatever, off-duty, they would go play bars and, and that sort of thing. So a lot of the musicians are part of the great migration up here, which, you know, they're coming from a blue-collar background, and many of them, you know, slid right into blue-collar-type jobs. So, um, and that's what they did until whenever. I mean, Yusef Latif uh, came up here, uh, Pepper Adams was here. There's just so many of the jazz people, and then many of the blues people uh, came through that method. And then actually, many of the Motown people have southern roots as well. Uh, they're you know younger than some of these other ones I'm talking about, but they had southern roots too. So, you know, in a general sense, and I think maybe that's what makes Detroit music and Detroit art and Detroit poetry, but art too so unique it's it's kind of born from a different um um, source than you know other cities might have you know so people who are painters and poets and actors and you know other kinds of writers i mean you really you're in detroit you know you really have to work hard at it to sort of rise above the general popular culture of things to be successful or at least to get your stuff out there um and i think you know i was thinking about this too i mean one of the things that i've always done and my goal had always been coming from the working class is to kind of make people uh, aware of that you know poetry and stories and writing exist and people don't have to have a phd to get into it and, you know, that was always my clarion call, so to speak, I mean, even, you know, from high school on. Uh, but finally, you know, I, I got an idea in the 80s down here. I was, you know, teaching here. But I was also working with the Poetry Resource Center of Michigan, which was sort of the Detroit Writers Guild of its day, only it was statewide, and writers belonged to it and that sort of thing. And, you know, they had fallen on hard times only because there was no art scene at the time. And there, But they did get uh, a grant from the Michigan Council for the Arts back then. They got what was called an arts project grant, which was a yearly thing to keep them afloat because they don't really have much money coming in other than minimal $10 memberships or something. I get, you know, they were saying, hey, well, we got to raise some money, you know. And I thought, okay, well, let, here's an idea. Let's take a bunch of poets and, you know, a couple of really well-known down around these parts or on the local scene, musical acts, groups, which was kind of like in that punk new wave era. And um, and Elvin's, I don't know if you ever knew about Elvin's, but that was where Tony G's is now, which is a restaurant down in the North End. Um, that was always kind of like a place where there was concerts and jams and community things. And actually, back back in the day, it was like one of the best delis in the world. Uh, everybody would go down there to uh, get deli sandwiches, including. You know, like George Clinton from the Funkadelics, he was there all the time. Kenneth Cockrell, many of the iconic Detroit people 
you know, lunched there and the food was great. But anyway, but we used that place for different stuff. So I went to them and I said, I got an idea. I want to do this benefit. And I'm going to have X number of poets read like little short five minute segments. And we're going to get everybody involved from all the different types of poets and poetry scenes in Detroit. This was 87. And, um, and we'll have them read. And then when they finish, we'll feature these bands. Because back then and still to this day, music from that group uh, and, and that kind of scene didn't start until 11 o'clock at night anyway, which I hate now that I'm older. Uh, seemed like a brilliant idea at the time. Uh, but uh, that, so that's about when the bands would go on, which was prime time. So we thought we'd have all the nutty poet, poetry people in the audience, and then they'd, they'd leave, and then the band people would stay there or whatever. Well, what happened is we sold the place out. A couple hundred people raised money for the organization, which was good. I put about 30 poets on, starting at about 7, 7.30, went till about 11, and they were all types of poets. I mean, every kind of poet you could imagine at that time. And it was not a scene like now. There wasn't really slam poetry or anything of that nature at that point. Uh, but there was just different styles, and, and everybody participated, raised the money. Well, when they were done... You know, the bands were getting set up and ready to just go on. And mm. in in the short interval or intermission, people were yelling for more poetry. I thought, am I? What? You know, and they're like, screw the bands, more poetry, you know. It, I mean, it got so bad. I kept doing these things. It got so bad that bands wouldn't even play them. They go, we're not going to play. Everybody leaves when, you know, the poetry's done. So I couldn't even get any bands. I, I limited and I went down from three to two to one to like none. Why do we need the band, you know, type of thing for these benefits. So that's when I knew something was going on. Now, that what that something was was probably, in hindsight, what I'd been working all my life to get to, which is to get a lot of people at some kind of literary event. Because even when I was in college, I started a literary arts organization uh, there. And, you know, the students weren't interested. And this was in the 70s when everybody thinks they were hip, hippies and stuff. In fact, that's how I, and maybe that's a connection too, Kim. That's how I um, started to bring music into the picture. I've, I kept thinking back then, this is like mid-70s. You know, people won't come in mass to a poetry reading, but maybe if it were more accessible, if it were more interesting, more people-oriented. So I started bringing music into it. You know, I and in those early days, I would perform, you know, with like a, a tape recorder behind me. And, and then that eventually evolved into musicians in Detroit here once I was down here. Um, and kind of getting known in that community, wanted to work with me. And then one thing led to another, led to the Magic Poetry Band, led to, you know, years of doing that sort of thing. And actually, after the Magic Poetry Band got started, which I think was around this time, 87, 88, 
we started being kind of poetry music at these kind of benefits, various benefits, because we used to have benefits against apartheid, benefits for So Sad. They were the mothers, uh, mostly mothers, of these Detroit kids who were killed by gun violence, you know. Um, and they had this organization called So Sad, and we would raise money for them. We raised money to get Mandela free. Um, and then with the, the thing I did here was called Rock and Read. Then we got the idea, like, okay, this is cool to raise money for the literary organization, but let's really help the people down here because it wasn't like what you see now. And, in fact, it's still there, but the Methodist church down in the corridor there had has been and is a homeless shelter and feeds the homeless. So we started raising money for them at these events, and that, then it became read and feed type of thing. Um, and that's what we, I don't think we went back after we started that to rock and reads. I think it was read and feeds from there on out, um, which probably we should do again, you know. But when we used to do the apartheid and the so sad, they were all, you know, 24 hours straight. And we had, it was like we would, you know, take turns and go somewhere at the place we were doing it and sleep and a little bit and then come back down and host them. And then we had the, the poets coming in all night, you know. Uh, until, I don't know, 11 the next day or something like that. But we had a lot of people. Bishop Gumbleton came, and John Conyers came and read something. And so we got a lot of people like that from the community, as well as, you know, lesser-known poets and stuff. The next section of the book deals with the blues. And we do a few pieces from the blues, a few of the essays in there. We, we're not going to do uh, Sunhouse tonight because we're trying to keep it within reason. But uh, we're going to do one that, from an essay written by Marsha Music that we've actually performed on the stage with Marsha. And she writes in her essay about her father, Joe Von Battle was the sole producer of over 75 albums of sermons and songs by legendary Reverend C.L. Franklin, the man with the million-dollar voice. He was the first to record that million-dollar voice of Franklin's daughter, Aretha, and produced her earliest gospel records. He also produced records by John Lee Hooker. At first, it was at the now-iconic United Sound Studios in Detroit, but that wasn't a singular achievement because Hooker would record with just about anybody. He would put his voice on tape. He would record under different names if he was allowed to get on to a recording. Like John Lee Booker, John Lee Hooker, John Lee Tooker, John Lee Cooker. Anything that would get him on there. But he hung around Daddy's store and the back room studio and sometimes he slept on that old vinyl couch in the back. Sleeping on that old vinyl couch on Hastings Street at Joey. The way I did the book is, you know, I've been teaching this Detroit class here also for a number of years. Uh, Motown class, it's called. And... Um, so, and I've always been into music and, you know, knew about music. 
and all that sort of thing. And, um, and you know, collected Detroit music and, and so forth. So what happened is I wanted to do a book that originally was going to be um, kind of like working words, poems, stories, and essays about Detroit music. And the Wayne State Press wanted, I can remember when, it was like a gray November day, and the, the editor of the press came over to see me. And um, Well, first off, I offered it to him. And they said, yeah, you know, we, we really don't have time to, we're not interested in that kind of project. Well, then I went, and U of M was interested. And I, I just said, look, if you guys want this project, I will do it because you're kind of my publisher, but U of M wants it. And then they were like, well, don't sign anything. Then they were interested, which was like, you know, whatever. And so the editor came over, and she said, you know, and we talked like this, and she said, I really like the idea, um, but would you consider making it kind of essays? And at first I wasn't. I thought, well, eh, you know, I don't know that much about, you know, music essays or people who do them. And so I was a little reluctant at first, and they were not really interested. Now, I'm going to tell you the story of how this gets really convoluted. So they weren't interested in a literary version of the book. But they thought, would you consider essays? And I thought for not too long, but I thought about it. I thought, oh, okay, I do know a lot of the music writers around the country that who have written about Detroit. So I can do this, you know. I think I can do this. And I did, and that opened a bunch of doors like that. But I still had this other project in the back of my mind. And they told me back then that they weren't really interested in it. Well, um, my friend Jim Daniels, do you know him as a poet from here? He's a working class poet, too. He teaches at Carnegie Mellon, but his he comes from the same kind of family I come from, you know, uh, factory workers and um, he has been publishing his fiction through Michigan State so I said to Jim I said Jim um, you know here's what I, I'd like to do do you think Michigan State would be interested and I, I'd given it to Wayne State and they weren't interested before and he asked the editors oh yeah we're into it you know we want to do that um I have to say, as I think about it right now, this book may become even more known than Heaven Was Detroit when it hits. Um, so we limited it to poetry. And we, between the two of us, we knew about every major living and dead uh, writer. And, and I knew a lot of musicians and some famous ones. And we went out and put this incredible book together. Um, uh, it's, well, originally it was called I Just Want to Testify, but then in August Aretha died, and then now it's Respect. So, so this, this book was what I was thinking before Heaven Was Detroit. And the reason I was mentioning that this book could be really uh, successful, everybody who knows about it, uh, and like the poets in it, I mean, it has every major poet from 
Rita Dove to Phil Levine to Robert Hayden, um, as well as Paul Simon and Robbie Robertson and Fats Domino and three of the MC5 and you know, they're mixed into this whole thing. And, and it does exactly what Heaven did. The first chapter are poems about jazz, poems about blues, poems about soul, poems about rock, and then poems about hip-hop and techno. So by all of these people, many of them are also, we, you know, I like to, which is my thing too, I like to offer opportunity. So a lot of them are some of the new up-and-coming uh, writers, and then there's all these other people they're mixed in with, you know. Uh, well, what, geez, there's got to be three or four poet laureates of the U.S. in there, as it turns out, who are connected to Michigan and stuff. Uh, in some way, Rita Dove's not connected, but she was one of them. Robert Hayden was the first one. So, what can I say, Kim? <laughs> Music's been very good to me. Yeah, music's been good to been good. To, it's been my life since I was four years old. You know, so it, you know, I, I think it was um, essentially destiny. I mean, Grandma turned me on to Elvis, and uh, the at four, and the rest is history. You know, it's what I wanted to do. Uh, I was writing anyway, so it wasn't a grand plan to be necessarily a poet doing it, but what I was doing and um, and then the Beatles come out and that changes everything for me mm-hmm. in fact we just did some kind of little yeah you know these icebreakers you do at these stupid meetings and stuff we did one and one of the, the thing was to answer questions of you know what what was the biggest influence in your life and this was with a bunch of academics and I said Beatles you know changed everything wow how'd that happen you know stuff so <laughs> well, I think what's been fun, um, the the best part of it is doing books that regular people are interested in and who buy, and um, you know they it appeals to them. And this poetry one too, even though it's poetry, which is not as popular as a you know book of essays. Um, just the way we've set this up, it's going to, you know, going back to your first question about working class poetry or working class art, working class poetry, I would say, based on my own and my own experience, is a poetry that, um, that you don't need a degree in to understand it. When, when you hear it, when you read it, you kind of go, oh, okay, I get that. I think that's true of, of it. And hopefully we made this new poetry anthology built of that kind of poetry that people can relate to. You've been listening to M.L. Liebler talking about the Detroit music anthology, Heaven Was Detroit. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. That's all, W-R-I-T-E, insincity.com. Right now, let's close this podcast with ML's shout-out to the rock and roll history of Windsor. I'm just going to tell you just a brief, a little bit, about Jack Scott, who uh, is actually from Kim's 
neck of the woods in Windsor, Ontario. But he made his name here. S.R. Bolin writes, intense, sincere, energetic, and just a little bit dangerous. That's the image of Jack Scott, the first rock and roll star to be properly identified with the city of Detroit. Scott, much like our drummer Lou, was born Giovanni Domenico Scarfona Jr., 1936. Grew up on Hank Williams, he later fused it with a little Detroit rock and roll attitude. He was a dominant force on radio and pop music charts from 1958 1961, placing 19 songs in the Billboard magazine Hot 100. And unlike many rock and roll pop stars of the era, Jack wrote his own songs and his own lyrics, and they were genius. Just check this out here. The way you walk is just the way I walk. The way you talk is just the way I talk. The way you smile is just the way I smile. Touch me, baby, and I go all right. Come on and be my little turtle dove Touch me baby, it feels so good I feel it though I want, I don't know if I should Touch me baby, the way I love And everybody say Singing that I did. Yeah, 
Doobie dooby dooby doo wah. That's fantastic. 